welcome in. Thanks. Am I coming through well? Yeah, you sound great. Okay, good. Uh, cool. So, yeah, what are we gonna talk about? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. First off, I just really appreciate you taking the time, and um, yeah, oh, no worries. The invitation to just to, to talk. So, I mean, oh, first off, maybe if you, uh, I guess, the general overview of how this all goes down. We're just gonna, yeah, maybe just talk about you, what you do, and mm-hmm. and then um, kind of dive into some questions there, and then. Well, from there, we'll be able to, yeah, maybe do like a little like activity at the end of some sort um, and kind of just besides you knowing you from work, also just try to know you as you. Right. Um, um, so, yeah, I guess we'll maybe if you want to start, if you can, if you don't mind introducing yourself and whatever way you'd like, um, that'd be awesome. Sure. Um, let me think. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Uh, well, hi, this is uh, David Colgan. I'm a communications director for UCLA's Environmental Institute and in general, just a creator, artist, writer, jack of all trades. Um, so I stumbled upon this career after spending a lot of money on law school degree that I don't use and um, or at least not much and uh, switching careers like about halfway through my life. So here I am. Well- Wow, if you don't mind diving into that, um, about that career switch, that'd be awesome. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of a, like a career Taoist, I believe, which is so, so uh, you know, whatever seems like the right move at the right time, I'm not going to be afraid to take it, even if it moves me in a different direction. I got really good advice mm-hmm. one time from, ironically, one of my law school professors, who's now passed, uh, his name was Charles Whitebread, um, and you know, he's, you know, he just basically said to the class and his sort of, he had this, uh, you know, gravelly voice and he's older and, um, and he goes, kiddos, 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 let me tell you something. And he always started out that way in about three years, some of you will be working in a big downtown office, making lots of money and you'll find out that you're completely miserable. My best advice I can give you is if you don't like what you're doing, do something else. The worst that can happen is you won't like that either. And that really resonated with me. Um, like one of those sort of quippy, very small bits of wisdom um, that I think a lot of people just sort of naturally, you know, we'd like to follow our plans. We'd like to follow this path that we sort of envision for ourselves. And quite often that makes us afraid of taking like little risks or trying new things. And, you know, especially at least for me, I found that, you know, trying things that I haven't done before is not only um, been rewarding uh, and challenging, but, you know, it, it's it's led me to just be, um, I don't know, a more complete person, both personally and professionally, um, and allowed me to see things in a lot of different perspectives. So um, I think that's you know, it's one of the advices, pieces of advice I also, I pass on to, you know, students I teach, uh, I teach a graduate student course um, in um, environmental communications called conversational science. And that's uh, one of the things I like to pass on to students is, you know, a lot of folks, especially at a place like UCLA, you know, we've got these just amazing overachiever students. And, you know, what good is, you know, just doing 
you know, just really plowing that path so hard if you're completely miserable at the end of the day. And, um, you know, I just don't think miserable people, you know, even from a practical standpoint, turn in, you know, the best work that they can do. You know, they're not happy. They're not going to do great work. And if they aren't loving what they do, then they're also not going to turn in their best. And, you know, that just sort of becomes a vicious circle for a lot of people professionally. 100%. So anyway, I, so yeah, so for me, it's like I was, you know, I was working for an elected officials office in LA uh, out of law school. I graduated in the recession and promptly failed the bar exam um, and had to make rent. So I literally like, you know, I had to, you know, hit the pavement and, and uh, get a temp job. And I just land, you know, always kind of wanted to work in, in politics and public policy. So it ended up, I landed at this office answering phones with the, with a JD um, which, you know, was a little humbling, but, you know, I was in the right place. So I, uh, yeah. you know, I, I, you know, I, I was doing sort of policy work, community engagement, and, um, and then, you know, sort of just start, I would always volunteer to just do extra stuff because I was, you know, completely bored by answering phones and taking constituent calls. Uh, and then, you know, they had, this was right around the time the LA Times had like a big buyout. And because um, the elected official I worked for, his name was, uh, he was a county supervisor, Zevyar Slavsky. He turned out of office in, I want to say, 2014, 15, something like that. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things that happened is they shut down the entire county local coverage desk. And, you know, he's just, you know, very sort of man of the people, really, you know, was good at sort of galvanizing public opinion and support behind the things that, you know, he wanted to do for, for the people. And so he really needed that mouthpiece. He, what he did was he hired over, you know, the former head editor of LA Times. Um, uh, his name was Joel Sapel. He sort of, and, and he gave me like my first chance um, at writing. He's, you know, just like, hey, you want to try writing this? So he started out doing like event articles and then built up to like, you know, feature stories and everything. And, um, and you know, within a year, I was just writing alongside you know him and two other LA Times veterans. I'm not saying I was as good as them or anything like that, but um, I was competent enough to be published beside them. So, so that was, you know, they just sort of took to it like a fish to water. And uh, you know, when push came to shove, eventually I had to make a career path choice of like, do I try to stay in politics? And you know, there were parts of it that didn't fit well with me, and. Um, and so I, I, you know, I switched to communications focused on, on public communications and writing and creative work instead. So I'm still, I'm still embracing and learning that world as I go, but, um, you know, it's been, it's been, it's been a pretty good trip already. You know, I've had a lot of, a lot of great opportunities along the way. That's awesome. So I, I assume, yeah, you would have never guessed you'd be where you are years ago. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I did have sort of a natural inclination towards this stuff, even like, you know, when I was a kid, like it was on the speech and debate team and stuff like that, but I was mm. always very interested in the political end of it. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that that just sort of faded a little bit. Um, maybe that'll come back someday, but for now it's like not really my main sort of focus, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's not the right time for it. If I, but if that path opens up, just like, you know, just like I was a, a Taoist into moving to this, like I, you know, someday maybe I find the right person to support and be get behind and, and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll make a trip back to that world as well. But, but for now I'm, I'm really happy where I'm at. That's awesome. So good to hear. Uh, so thank you for yeah sharing that story. Um, I kind of want to go and talk a little bit about 
how we got in contact um, because I reached out to you because I was trying to get scientists onto this on the podcast and talk to them and it mm. led to this like wonderful conversation about how difficult it is to speak with scientists which I thought was extremely fascinating um, and that whole realm was there anything surprising to you coming into like the environmental realm um, when you first entered oh yeah I mean I think uh, you know I, I wouldn't say the environmental realm specifically in fact i'd say that's probably a little but just the academic world and working at a university mm. as a staff member um it's just such a bizarre flip for me because when i was speaking you know and asking questions on behalf of you know an elected official who controls budgets and stuff like that right um you know people were just like they'll jump to it right and so that's the sort of experience i had had before and in this situation you know, I moved into a place where most, at least, of, you know, the people and the experts I work with um, don't see that as their uh, primary function of their job or, or necessarily even the most important thing they do. And you have zero power. I came to a place where the only power you have is developing report and soft power um, by working collaboratively in the best possible way to build relationships. So, I actually learned probably, I found that the, that the university world was more political than the political world, which was uh, um, a little bit of a shock to me. Uh, yeah, I think as a student, from a student perspective, you don't really quite see that, but but it's definitely a reality that you end up seeing when, you, when you're part of the world professionally. Huh. I had no idea. Is that discouraging or is that, do you feel like that's fueling in ways or how does that make you feel? You know, it can, it can, it can cut both ways. Um, you know, sometimes it's a little frustrating, uh, I think especially because, um, and I don't, I don't think this is through any fault of anybody's own. It's just how people are, you know, I don't think many people who are sort of very science focused and like they're doing research and working with data using all of the, you know, and, and whatever, using all of the skills I devoid, I completely avoided developing as, as, as I was getting my education. Um, it, does, sure. it, it makes sense that they would be a little less familiar with, with what I do. Um, mm. and, um, you know, they also, you know, they have, they have so many other responsibilities. They have to raise funding, they have to teach classes, they have to do the research, you know? And so, so, so communications is also a little bit on top of that. And I think it's, there is definitely a perception and, and this is not just university, but I think throughout many professions that, um, you know, public communication is just sort of something anybody can do. Right. And the difference between, you know, like a, like a, um, an almost great communications effort and like one that is really top-notch and professional is night and day it it really it colors how everybody perceives the person in the institute doing it um and and i think i think to you know to the profession's credit especially in the environmental realm people are warming up to the importance of that um especially as they start to see the results come in and you know i think it's especially again hard for people who are very science minded or or you know or research minded um to appreciate the profession in some ways because you know it doesn't have sort of always these direct line outcomes right 
You know, you have yeah. weird outcomes, like like maybe a prospective professor sees the website and is really, you know, impressed. And that's part of the big, big part of his decision or her decision to join, you know, the university or a student. And I know there are several cases where this has been the case for us, um, but they're anecdotal, very anecdotal, right? Like, so it's very easy to write that off as, you know, being due to a million other reasons and not a direct cause, mm-hmm. you know, causal relationship. And I think, you know, I think that is starting to change because over time um, you do through sort of repeating things and through getting people exposure, you know, when, when they see themselves in the guardian or on television or wherever. Right. And, you know, our experts like that's other people see that even among like their sort of, you know, um, their peers, like their peer group within academia, they get to see that and they get to show that off. And um, I think that is something that they take a lot of pride in. And the more, you know, sort of practice they do at it and the more adept they become at at, at sort of promoting what they do, their work in themselves publicly, just like that, that hunger does start to build. And I've seen that in a lot of, a lot of our faculty. Um, And I also think it's, there's a, there's a difference between sort of younger faculty and, and, um, and, uh, you know, more seasoned, uh, you know, faculty and, mm. and how eager they are to do that stuff, right? Like, maybe they have less management duties. I'm not sure exactly why that's the case. But um, there are, I mean, this is this isn't just me speaking, there's research on this, you know, that, um, that, that across the board, um, you know, researchers and, and scientists on the younger end, are, are have, have much more appetite for public, public communications and see the benefits. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, is it when you speak to researchers or, um, yeah. And scientists, do you think a majority are younger, a majority are older? Is there? No, I, is I, I mean, I see it at least in my participation, I see both. Um, I've been hmm. working with all of the above and, and everybody's, you know, for the most part, everybody's really great. I mean, there's, there are some folks that I wish, you know, I would participate more, you know, would, would participate a little bit more in, in what we do on the public communications front. But at the same time, um, <laughs> we only, we're a really small unit. So um, the more people participate, eventually, I'll, you know, won't be able to cover all of it. And and I think that's like sort of highlights another problem that's sort of endemic across science institutions in the country. Mm-hmm. It was really brought to light by the pandemic which is that we're just not investing enough in public communications about scientific research that has direct application to people's lives, to public policy, and to all these other things that, you know, are where the rubber meets the road. So that, I think, if we're going to deal with things like climate change and other global crisis, we can't have a repeat of what we saw with the pandemic, where the information drips out, some of it contradicts itself, because and because people don't understand how science works that just sort of builds on itself and yeah of course we're going to learn new things that 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 turn everything on its head especially with the new thing we're studying um they don't understand that it's that's the sort of you know this is the best we know at that moment and that this stuff can change that when it does change um they're just not familiar enough with that process to be able to um Oh, I mean, how to how to put it? Like, you know, it, what it does is it builds. It ends up building builds some distrust among within in science, right? So even though you know it's the best sort of fact based information that we got, right? The science and the research on this definitely better than the anecdotal stuff. Definitely better than you know politically or private equity driven stuff, right? Um, 
you know, that, that, you know, well done science is the best we've got. They just don't understand that sometimes new discoveries are going to turn old discoveries on their head. And uh, Mm -hmm. people, I think, have trouble trusting that level of um, change. Yeah, absolutely. Is there like a a solution that you have in mind of being able to, I guess, alleviate some of that, um, I guess, lack of ability to get information out that is pressing and is very tangible with people's lives? Yeah. I mean, I I think there's, there's a couple things. There's a lot, well, there's a lot to say on that. Um, Yeah. uh, You know, we definitely need, I mean, one as we're seeing this sort of rise, I mean, so it's not just a decline in, it's not just a lack of science communications investment. What it is also is a void created by a decline in well-funded and um, fact-based journalism. So there's Mm -hmm. a void of information that we've created, that has been created, I think, largely just because of technological evolution and things like that. and, and the, you know, the, the real answer, I mean, one of the reasons, so one of the reasons I sort of came to a university in the first place is that I see, you know, I, w- I could have tried to go get a job in journalism, but, it, you know, the prospects were not good, especially for somebody who was already, you know, in their thirties, you know, you know, why would I try to do that when there's already all these much younger people that are just getting started, there would be starting from scratch at a um, salary that wouldn't have supported me. Right. So, right. So I, you know, I saw this as, you know, both a challenge because I did not see the environmental stories I was doing while working for the elected official catching on and like some of the other stuff, like transportation stuff was caught fire because you had that really engaged community of interest and, you know, health stuff, people were super interested in that, but definitely a lot, le- a lot less interest in environmental issues, at least at that time. This was again now approaching 10 years ago. So so I, you know, when I came here, it was because I think that academic research and, and sort of, you know, research in general is in essence, at least philosophically fact-based reporting, right? It's fact-based reporting that only a relatively small contingent of people can understand fully and really connect with. But um, in essence, you're still just trying to explain things, right? You're explaining the data, you're you're reporting the data, right? And so I thought a natural extension of that is for me, I could do fact-based reporting at least, you know, with some caveats because I still have to represent the, the institutes I work for, right? Um, institutions I work for. But um, it was a chance to kind of take that to a broader audience and to sort of expand that and and try to work on ways of, of, um, of, of bringing it to the public um, because that's really how change happens. I mean, you're not... You know, that's how you influence policy. You don't just, I mean, yeah, it's great if you have a direct line to, you know, a senator or something, right? But but a lot of people can't get that. And, you know, they're constantly pulled in a million directions. So they do pay attention to the news, though. They do pay attention to the information that makes it out that way. And, you know, if you really do want to make change and make your, you know, get your research off the shelf and into the streets or, or into the, you know, whatever, the rainforest or wherever it's going, um, you got to, you got to connect with the public. And, 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 and so, so that's, that's, that's part of it. Right. And, and so now that you've got this decline though, in journalism and you do have, I think much less appetite among 
um, and not just environmental science, but all sciences to invest in public communications. And of course, you know, resources are very scarce as well, right? You know, over the mm. past, you know, four years, especially works, you know, they're scarce and, you know, you're, you're depending on private investment and grant money and stuff like that. And, um, you know, there's just not as much, you know, not as much public funding for this sort of thing. But I think if they want to make, if, if like if any form of a Green New Deal wants to ever get off the ground, if any, you know, if we even want to get, yeah. you know, an infrastructure bill or anything like that, sustainable anything off the ground, we're going to need to invest more in public communications. And those public communications have to be legitimate, legitimate and effective enough and entertaining enough to stand in for journalism when journalism has other things to cover. Um, at least mm. at this point in time, that's where we are. So they definitely, it's, it's, some of it comes down to just basic money and resources. And would that come from the university? I mean, it could come from a lot of places. It could come, again, from private donors, tax dollars. It could come from, you know, grant money. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, and this is not my organization, which has actually done a fantastic job. The Institute of Environment and Sustainability at UCLA has done a great job in investing um, in communications, uh, public communications of, of the work that we do. Um, but, uh, but you're just across the board. I mean, there are, there are research institutes that are doing really important work to people's lives, um, and to public policy, and they might have 77, 78 PhDs and not a single person to publicly communicate about that stuff. And they'll hire another PhD before they hire that person. So, you know, I think, I think there, there needs to be sort of reassessment, um, one at a top level, at a high level, um, of, of, of how much we invest in, in public communications of the science we're doing, um, and, and, um, getting that out to the public. And I think it will bring those intangible, difficult to track rewards I mentioned earlier, um, right. you know, in, in their sort of bottom line, right? Like I, I do think and we've seen it. Um, I've seen it personally. I do think that, that, uh, you know, that that's, it, it, it gives great results. Um, it just uh, it's just not as tangible data wise as you'd like it to be. And to make to do the to do the actual science, the, sort of the communications science. Right. Like you can't like, sure, I can report stats. PR firms will sell you a bill of goods by reporting the most audacious, ridiculous statistics about the exposure you get. And it's all hyperinflated. Like it's just like they're selling you. They're selling themselves to you with this data mm-hmm. and. It, it doesn't really measure the impact. I mean, you can, a better way to do it is something like a, a content analysis, which is much more in depth and requires a lot of time for a single piece of content. So, you know, again, back in a world with limited resources, we're kind of in a catch 22 where, you know, because there's not enough funding for public communications in the sciences, um, you basically have to make a choice of, do I create content? Or do we do like really hard data stuff, right? Mm. And uh, I think I think that that's something else that could change, and that might help. Uh, you know, if we invest a little bit more in um, the the field and, and sort of analyzing science communications in the right way, um, I think that can help. But at the end of the day, it's it's kind of an art rather than a science. So um, yeah. what you really want is good creatives um, across the board and. There should be plenty of them looking for work now that, uh, you know, it's so tough to get a job in, in other creative fields. 
Absolutely. Do you think there could be ever like a science communication group or entity organization, whatever it might be that is kind of like plugged into multiple universities and scientists and is able to handle a lot of communication? Do you think that would work or do you think that would kind of be looked down upon because it's just one entity doing all of it? Um, um, yeah. I don't think it could be one entity. I don't think that's sort of thing that yeah. does well without some sort of competition. Um, and also I apologize for the military helicopter that just flew over my head and set off car alarms. That's all good. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so there are some places that already do this, right? And they are, there are some places that do it really well. I think to me, Yale E360 is probably the best example, best shining example mm. of this. And they, you know, their model is, is fantastic. And, and one of the reasons it's so successful um, is that it has, it maintains a degree of independence, right? It partners with major publications like the Atlantic and the Washington Post. And, you know, so it attracts writers throughout the field, right? And, and, uh, wow. and, 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 and draws from science throughout uh, the environmental realm. And, and, and that's, that's one example. There's other places, um, Oh, there's a, there, there are a couple, there, there are a lot of other places that do this, but, um, I, I don't, th I think mo most of them are relatively small scale. Um, so yeah, I think there's a need for more of that sort of thing, but you know, Yale's got uh -huh. deep pockets, they can invest in it, but not, not everybody has that kind of, you know, investment money. So, right. uh, uh, you know, it, you know, it depends, right. If you're, you know, if you, if, if you're, uh, um, you know, a publicly funded institution of some sort. Um, it's just, uh, it's, it's a, it, it's a lot harder to rally that kind of, those kind of resources. Totally. When it comes to like, um, youth and even like schooling at a young age, how, do you know how long it takes to get like relatively new research and, like updates to even just like textbooks and curriculums and um, just like as far as primary education goes, um, mm. do you know how that looks with like up-to-date research and like I guess modern science? I mean, not really. <laughs> okay. you know, yeah. That's that's not really my what I do typically. I mean, obviously there's a sure. lag between research and publication and then when it makes into when it comes, it goes into textbooks, right. It's still a moment in time. And it, you know, that the, the, I mean, I've, I've written a book um, and I know how much time goes into writing a, a book, let alone a textbook. Uh, mm. So there's like, you know, you've got a year or two in that process most often. And uh, yeah, you can revise and whatnot and, and update it as much as possible. And I think that's a good thing, but, but yeah, there, I think there's always going to be a bit of a lag there. Um, and that's why sort yeah. of keeping, keeping the put, you know, maintaining this push of, of, of current research out to the public is, is, you know, extra important is because you're not always going to have the latest in your textbooks. Right. Right. Universities, uh, you know, professors will assign papers and everything and that's, you know, they do keep up pretty well at universities, but definitely like when you're talking about like high schools, middle schools, um, places like that. Um, I think it's a lot harder, right. To keep up with that. Yeah. 
which I think is, yeah, so interesting because, I don't know, those, it seems like those minds, like, should, I don't know, almost are, should be, a, in my opinion, like, a emphasis to keep up to date on what's going on because you're almost, like, framing them for what they can do later on. Um, but, yeah, that, I guess that's more of a education system well, question <laughs> i do i mean i think there's an intersection there for sure um yeah you know uh definitely one of the things we see with our outreach to like high schools is that a lot of students particularly in disadvantaged communities um, but in all communities don't really understand the jobs that are open in the environmental fields right like they don't understand mm, yeah. what that profession could look like at the end of the day for them right and there there's a lot of different ways you can go with it, of course, right? You can work, you can do the hard research for an institute, you can, you know, do communications work, you can do policy work, you can, you know, work for nonprofits and do advocacy. There's just, a, there, but there's just so many, and I'm not even scratching the tip of it here, but like, right. um, but there's just a lot that they can do with that kind of a degree. And I don't think very many of them understand that. Um, I certainly didn't when I was in school, like when I was in high school, I definitely didn't understand, you know, what different degrees could take you, where, where different degrees could take you professionally. Um, and I, that's, that's always a challenge. And I, and again, that sort of brings me back to the sort of idea of like being willing to change what you're doing, right? Like, you know, definitely see it among college students who switch majors, right? But, uh, you know, even even once they get into a profession, right? There are a lot of people that are working outside of their area of study. Right. This this like reminds me of, um, just I guess yeah. I've had extremely similar feelings of not knowing at all going through schooling about like what is even out there, um, and it seems like I don't know if somehow if there was a way in which almost you could see like a the larger picture of everything of, of like what is actually needed you know and in, in this community right and what mm -hmm. help is actually needed and what you can actually work towards to be of help or um service there i don't it just doesn't seem like there's any sort of um layout for even like becoming of help to different issues or problems going on in the world it just seems like you there's like these the traditional career paths that you're aware of and um i don't even know if there's a way to even demonstrate the the needs yeah i mean i think it's that and it's also um just unfamiliarity with the realities of working a specific job or profession in within the field right um yeah and i think well we'd you know at UCLA, we do actually a, a, a very good job of that um, in providing a lot of practical opportunities. Like that's like a hallmark of our educational programs is, you know, people get practical experience, you know, in the field before they graduate. Right. And, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we have an entire like a year long program, the senior practicum, which does that just that like we they partner with a nonprofit or government or a business or something that's seeking some sort of environment slash sustainability um, research and our students provide that and they get to, they get to sort of 
they get to actually have some experience where that mud, where that rubber meets the road and, um, right. and they get, and then they get to see like the real world impacts that they can have with their work. And I think that's, you just, you just don't get that experience in a classroom alone. You can't. And then with some professions, certainly with the one that I work in, it's very practice based. If you stop writing for, you know, if you, if you don't keep writing for several years, you know what I mean? You're never going to, reach a professional level and, and writing consistently, I mean, and then that's really all about being okay with not being great for a while. <laughs> Nobody wants to get out right. there and, and fall on their face. Right. But, um, uh, you do have to a little bit, you know, you have to get out there, you have to do podcasts, you have to do, you know, you may, maybe you've never been on television, but you've got to have a first time for it. Right. Um, right. You, you know, maybe you've, you know, and, and it's still, even after that, you're always going to have room to improve. I think it's definitely not a, there's, there's, there's definitely no end on that journey, but, um, I, you know, and I, I think that's sort of, I mean, there's to, to some degree, that's the case in a lot of professions. Um, yeah. Know, so, so the, so the, the practical experience is just to me of the utmost importance. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you know if there's any, I guess, like, do you think it's best for people if they're looking for practical experiences in any field it doesn't seem like there's any straight like pipeline to get that you know um i guess is it do you think you would recommend just sifting through online i don't know applications and maybe just contacting to see if you can see what it's like yeah um i think that's definitely a way to go i i don't it's, it's, it depends, right? Because not everybody, you know, and this is sort of like the thing that people get really upset with when it comes to things like unpaid internships and volunteerism, right? Is, you know, a lot of people don't have the luxury or the privilege to be able to just do that stuff. And so therefore, yeah. the people with privilege to do it instantly have a leg up. And this was, you know, I had to wait tables all through college and definitely wanted to participate, participate in more extracurriculars, but I just couldn't, you know, I did not have, did not have the financial resources to do that. Um, and so I think they, you know, I, 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 so I, I think that is really important. Uh, as you kind of said, I mean, one of the things I always advise, you know, students to do in addition to doing like a job search in the formal job search process um, I think it could actually be a lot more valuable to do a lot of informational um, interviews at the places you think you'd like to work, right? Just mm, find yeah. somebody who's willing to talk about their job with you from there because people love to talk about themselves. Boy, do they ever. I am no exception. You know, people love to talk about the work that they do and talk about the, themselves and the stuff that really makes them excited. And so what you basically do is you, you set meetings and you go let them talk about their life and their work and get a lot of information about what it's like to work in that particular job or that career or that profession. And you also make a lot of great contacts that way. And oftentimes much better than in a situation where it's clear that you're seeking a job, right? If it's a lot less yeah. formal, it kind of takes the pressure off the, the person that's looking for a job and seeking employment. And it also takes the formality of, you know, being just utterly scrutinized and allows for better free flowing discussion and you get to know each other better, you know, and that's at the end of the day, that's the connection you want to make with people is you want to find a place that you feel comfortable working at as well as, um, or one feels comfortable working at as well as, uh, you know, a place that 
is going to be a good fit. Like you're going to be a good fit for them as well. So you, you do, you know, I think that is, that's, that's really important. And I've seen some, you know, I've hired people directly because of, you know, informational interviews. Um, mm. And I think it's a power move <laughs> to, to use that cliche. Yeah. It's just, uh, it's definitely good. Yeah. I guess even on the, the extreme flip of being like, if you get too much information and feel like you can't decide and pick anything to also just try and experiment and see what happens. Yeah, sure. There. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. You know, trial and error is not something to be afraid of. Um, especially early in a career, but even later in a career, you know, it's, you know, you, you don't know what it's going to be like. And if it don't like it, do something else. And um, yeah, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of, of that. Yeah. Awesome. I kind of want to talk about um, just generally just how like the leaders of science on climate issues or um, like how they tend to communicate with each other or if they do at all and how that looks like just between one another and if one's doing research on um, whatever it may be, if they're talking to someone who's also doing a similar similar research or is it what that environment is like if it's collaborative or more independent? Well, I mean, I think... You know, uh, you know, it, it's been sort of this long-running um, professional cliche, and you see it not just in science, but in lots of places about busting down silos, right? Um, mm. Where you know you don't want to, you want people working together on a problem. That's really the animating feature of the institute I work for is that we've got people in public policy, we've got people in public health, we've got people in all the hard sciences and the arts and everything, right? Like all working on environmental issues, right? And, and it gives a lot of different perspectives and there is definitely, there are definitely people working together on that stuff. I think, however, that the structure of the, of, of, of what it takes to both advance uh, in a, at a university and get funding and all of that stuff, all that stuff is really, um, it's individual focused, right? Like that's, mm. you know, people are distinguishing themselves by their own specific research and often you know, that's, that's their, their, that's their niche, right? Like that's, that's what they do. You know, maybe, you know, you, maybe you focus on this one aspect of climate change just one aspect of climatology, right? Um, right. One aspect of extreme weather events and how that relates to climate change or, or whatever. Um, and, you know, I think that's the, the system kind of does, and, and that stuff's important. I'm not, don't get me wrong. That's, it is very important to have specialty stuff happening, but I think, um, and I, and I definitely stress this in the communi communi uh, communications sort of context, but it's also really important in a research context, in my opinion, which is that um, you need to be willing to just sort of stray from that a little bit every now and then, or, you know, maybe, maybe at least like, you know, you know, whatever, every third paper or every second paper should be something that is a couple different fields, whether it's, you know, from, from different perspectives, working on a problem in a way that, um, is a little bit broader, a little bit more general, um, and can provide some insights uh, that you wouldn't find if you're just really producing a data-focused paper, which again, super important still to have. 
Um, I, I just think we could have a little bit more synthesis of, of, um, of the different fields of research, um, you know, across around the world really. But, um, but yeah, we definitely need it in environmental science because we are not dealing with simple systems that are able to be handled in isolation. Right. I think the biggest thing that I get worried about is that there's not like nobody has a, not even a roadmap, but nobody has like a, everything laid out every sort of direction that we could go in or there's not information that's laid out saying, here's what we need to like dive into further because we don't know what's going on here and that this is pressing for everyone in our society. Um, it just seems like it's moving along in just diagonals and different ways. And it's not, there's not like a culmination. It doesn't feel like at least it's getting communicated um, to people because yeah, it just seems like from, from listening to this, it seems like there's a lot of people on islands doing their research when really the most important, if this is a very time sensitive issue, um, it seems like it's the key. The key is like constant collaboration to come up with solutions quick. But. Yeah. I mean, I think it's going to, I mean, if we're looking at the next decade, um, we're going to have some really, um, some really difficult moments as we deal with the acceleration of climate change that are going to force people to reevaluate how we treat. I mean, even in a larger sense, getting outside of the academic context or the research context um, in the in the sort of world of politics and public policy and you know international relations and all this stuff. You know, it's always bothered me. And I think it bothers a lot of people that we treat the environment as if it's some sort of discrete issue. It's like, okay, we've got the economy and we've got the environment and we, mm. <laughs> we've, we've got, you know, right. we've got assault weapon, weapon bans and stuff like that. Right. We've got, uh, we've got all these, it's like, no, 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 because like none of this, none of these other issues exist if we have an unhealthy or uninhabitable planet and mm. um, nature is just, you know, way, way more powerful than any of us could ever hope to be. So the best we can do is figure out the best ways to work with it. And, um, you know, it, it needs to be a part of everything that we do, right? Sustainability um, needs to be a focus, right? And, and I think that, you know, both are, you know, sort of the way that our economy works and the way that our political system works um, are not geared towards that, right? You know, like politicians, for example, like you don't want to do something that somebody's going to get credit for in two decades, right? You want to build that bridge mm. that has your name on it so you can show it off for you get reelected, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, yeah. likewise, it's like shareholders, like, you know, what is your bottom line, right? Um, mm. it's, it's, it's money and it's often short-term over long-term, right? And, and so, and I think that's going to be an extremely difficult thing to overcome without major changes in the way we do business. But I also think that as climate change ramps up, um, it's going to have a lot more short-term impacts. And so it will necessarily become, I think, by default, a part of the calculus when we're dealing with, you know, you know, sort of like, uh, you know, in, investment, when we're dealing with um, public policy and politics and things like that, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to be forced to reckon with that beast. Got it. You think that like once it's presented itself more in front of people's face, like the 
gears will just accelerate in a way. Well, I just think it's going to be, it's not even that it's, it's sort of, I mean, again, it comes back to the public, right? It comes back to the, to, to everybody and, and how we live our daily lives. And then, you know, you saw this definitely this past year during the pandemic, but you also see it all over the place. Um, you know, which is that, um, you know, people, you know, if, if it affects people on a daily basis, they pay attention to it, right? If it's something down the road, we have a real tough time imagining it, right? And so the pandemic right. hadn't, ha- we hadn't had a global pandemic like like we did with COVID-19 since, you know, at least arguably since the Spanish flu 100 years ago. So we were trying to respond to something to which we didn't have a lot of almost zero existing memory. Yeah, we have the research, but like the realities were something that gets, they get, that gets lost to time so quickly. Um, and with climate change, right, we're dealing with something that we don't even have a species level memory of. This is something that's never happened in the history of the earth, at least not in this way and not, and not this fast. So Hmm. I think we're, always going to be underestimating that just because of what it and just because of human nature. And uh, I do think though, that what we're seeing with everything from wildfires to water scarcity, to famines, to right. Like we're seeing a lot of things to, to, um, you know, to storms, massive storms that are getting worse, things that in, in, impact people in a really profound way. And I think will increasingly impact people's daily lives. And then I think, um, the environment as sort of um, not just an issue, but a, an all-encompassing sort of factor in how we do, how we live our lives and how we make policy and, and decisions at a, at a business, private and uh, public level. Um, that's going to become really important and it's going to become important fast and we're going to be behind on it because we respond to what's in front of our faces. And, you know, the, the sort of, um, so the book I co-authored with UCLA economist, environmental economist, Magali Delmas, um, really drilled at that um, when it comes to consumer behavior. You know, you've got sort of this sort of little, this minority, small minority of people who are like your sort of hardcore environmentalists. They're ultra like, you know, granola munching hippies for, to just sort of cliche them out um, and to, to kind of pigeonhole them that way but like you know the people that are just in, in a much more positive sense like truly devoted to taking care of the environment through their personal lives and are willing to make right. a lot of sacrifices and that's a that's a very small minority of the consumer overall consumer base uh and then you've got the other end of the spectrum and there are people who are just you know i don't know how to describe them maybe they're like these sort of coal rolling you know environmentalism is wimpy for whatever reason, <laughs> like, like just a sure. sort of the strange other end of the cultural spectrum and the consumer spectrum that you're probably not going to reach very easily at all, if at all. Right. But the vast majority lie in the middle, right? And those are people that, you know, they say that the decisions they make, you know, when they're buying things, when they're, you know, when they're buying products or services um, can make a difference, you know, in the environmental issues that they say also, they also say, are important that they can affect those issues by doing that. But then when they come to the point of sale, right, this vast majority of consumers, they make a decision based on their own personal interests. And people are just Mm -hmm. like, we're, well, we evolved that way. And it makes sense that we're just, we're a little bit selfish or a little bit, you know, self-focused, I guess. Um, And it's definitely difficult for us to see the big picture. And I think that's going to become, you know, 
That's 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 the human challenge of climate change, right? Is getting somehow past that. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you have any recommendations for people in the middle now? Just like if anyone listens and they're like, they want to help and they don't, they're in the middle ground and they, yeah, I guess like the day to day, anything people could do. I mean, the most thing, the most, the most important thing obviously is not people's individual consumer behavior, although that matters in aggregate. Um, you know, it's it's public policy and how you vote and making sure this is an issue um, that is of importance to you when you when you consider who you're voting for. And, you know, that's that's the most impact you can make is your vote. Huh. I know that's, you know, activism as well and activism that drives public policies specifically. Not everybody's going to be able to become an activist, though, but you can certainly support organizations that do that stuff. Um, right. But yeah, I mean, but but. But it, it is getting to the point. I mean, the thing is, is then this is definitely something I sort of realized while writing the book, um, you know, which is called the Green Bundle, by the way, if anybody wants to buy it. Um, yes. And uh, you know, one of the one of the things that I, I sort of kind of immediately popped out is that there are we don't need to sell environmentalism, right? Sustainable products, sustainable goods have benefits natural benefits besides being sustainable like yes there's Mm. that benefit but tesla right for to use a very prominent example like they don't advertise zero emissions they advertise zero to 60 because they know that the people that are going to buy them are going to care much more about the quality and performance of their vehicles right and you see that also i mean you see that with uh things like health that's another perfect intersection right you know you've got food without all these chemicals in it and you know although it's up for debate how much that really does impact your health. Um, certainly better for ecosystems and for workers working, um, you know, in, in vineyards or in, you know, wherever, right? Like people that are actually working yeah. these products to not have pesticides all over the, everything. And so like health is a sort of another natural intersection. Um, and, you know, I think another thing people value is like how they look in their community, right? So if their community begins to value, um, being sustainable and and doing the right thing by the environment. Um, that's something that they want to be seen as doing as well, right? Like the power of peer pressure yeah. is just super big, right? It's huge. Uh, and, um, and so you want people to see you driving your, you know, easily distinguishable, you know, electric vehicle or, you know, you know, just, you want it to be apparent. That's enough. Like there's a lot of value people can get, I guess, and a lot of ways to get that value without sort of being like, okay, this is an environmental product. You should buy it for the planet, right? People are wired to be a little bit selfish. You've got to show them what's in it for them. Absolutely. Do you think it's unhealthy for people to feel guilt if they're not helping the, like if they're not making a decision to help the environment as far as like, let's say it's, they eat meat, you know, and like they feel like they're not helping the environment and they feel guilty for it, even though they really enjoy meat. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> excuse me. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know if unhealthy or, I mean, yeah, it's, it's easy to feel unproductive and it's also easy to take sort of an all or nothing sort of not mindset. Right? right. Like, so like I've got to stop eating meat and become a vegan versus 
you know, and that's why things like Meatless Monday have sort of become more popular, right? It's like, okay, well, I just don't have to eat meat with every meal or, you know, I can reduce the amount of meat I eat. Um, but this is a, that's a, that's a, especially with that example, that's a tough hill to climb because, yeah. you know, that's food is such a like ingrained part of our culture and it's very difficult to change culture in that way. Yeah. Right. Like, uh, like, it, you know, it's, you know, you've got memories, you've got like, you know, you've got these, these sort of these deep positive associations with say barbecuing in the backyard with your friends and family or, you know, foods that are just sort of, um, foods that are important to your culture, not just in a right. traditional sense, in a religious sense, like, you know, just, it, it really is so deeply ingrained in our culture that I don't think, I mean, I think the people that advocate for like, you know, don't eat meat because the environment are not going to be successful. Hmm. You know, I think, I think people that advocate the the positives of like, not, not meat alternatives, but having eating more plant-based meals, right. And right. like sort of sort of celebrating how good those can be is much more effective, right? Um, and, and people, you know, I, I, th I do think people will stop eating or will start eating less meat over time, um, but they're not going to stop. I mean, if you're, especially when you have few choices, I mean, that, we're also assuming, um, you know, people in the context of I can make this choice to not eat meat. Well, heck, you know what? Meat has a lot of calories. It has a lot of fat. It fills you up, yeah. right? And, uh, and, and for some people that's what they need, right? Like you get, you know, to, to use the, 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 you know, one of the, the worst examples, it's like, you know, a double cheeseburger at McDonald's is one of the most efficient things you can eat calorie wise, right? Mm. It's one of the most cost effective things for, for, um, people in a neighborhood, especially when you live in a, you know, in food deserts and places like that, right? Like I'm. Certainly right. have seen that across LA. And I've also seen, and I would love for somebody to look into this on a personal level is love for somebody to research food or not food, but produce quality, um, maybe by zip code or by neighborhood or something like that. Cause when I lived down by USC where I did my law degree, um, the produce was terrible in South central LA, right? It was terrible. I went there and it was just all bad and rotten. Now you go to a place that's like more upscale, right? Um, or a place that's not more upscale, but like, you know, more financially privileged, um, more privileged in general across the board, you're going to see better produce. And I, I, I would love to see somebody do some sort of analysis of, of major chain grocery stores, um, throughout Los Angeles, because, because, uh, that's, that's another thing that feeds into this is that, you know, a lot of people just don't, I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of people don't have those options. Right. Um, right. I mean, I'm sure that vegans and vegetarians showing up to family barbecues, right? They're very acquainted with the fact that, man, we might need to cobble something together here because uh, all we got is hamburgers and hot dogs, right? right. <laughs> so, so, uh, so, it's tough. I think that's a tough one. But I think in general, in in, in general, it's um, we need systemic change rather than individual change. It's much more important, and that will drive individual change. So, so what, how companies do business, uh, how sustainable they are, um, you know, what, po what public policies we have, um, we, we've got to, we've got to make, we've got to focus in that direction, I think, um, while also, while also, you know, that's not to say to ignore the importance of personal conservation, but doing it at a really big scale is, 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 is how you make a difference. Absolutely. I feel like for myself, I've gone through 
yeah, different phases where I feel so inclined to tangibly make changes to help the environment. And then I get back to this moment where I think, like, shoot, I really want a burger or something, right? And then I'll say, <laughs> I'll say to myself, like, well, it's fine if I have it now because, like, what impact does this even make if it's so so much bigger than just, like, this decision to, you know, or this this one personal decision? And I don't know if that's healthy or not to have that mindset of um, being just like, well, it's, you know, it's it's systemic, it's, it's so big, it's out of my control, it doesn't really matter what I'm doing um, as far as right. these decisions, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you know, it's almost like um, if you want a sustainable diet for health reasons, right? You know, a lot of diets will be like, okay, if you have an urge, like, indulge for that moment, right? Um, yeah. Don't don't completely deny that urge. I mean, this is obviously for people who are, you know, eating less meat or eating no meat because of not because of like um, other reasons, but specifically for sustainability reasons um or something similar which is uh you know you're focusing then i think it is mentally it can be mentally unhealthy um to focus on the negative and i think it sets yourself up for failure sets people up for failure right Mm -hmm. um rather than focusing on the big picture like wow i you know i i ate a plant-based diet three days this week instead of two or you know what i mean or whatever you know like I i think people need to sort of I mean, this is the problem, right? Like we've got an environment, which is that it's so depressing. (laughs) It's it's so depressing on a personal and on like a global scale. And, you know, they, there's been a lot of research, one of like sort of the main focuses of research on environmental communications over the past two decades has been on like how stories about the environment and science and, and sustainability are framed. And, you know, I think, you know, for a long time you heard, it's like, okay, well, we got to get away from the gloom and doom, right? So it's like all, like all the communications are gloomy, doomy. It seems like this problem that's just insurmountable. We can never get over it. Mm. Um, But they've, there's also research suggesting that the other end of the spectrum, something that's completely positive also encourages inaction, inaction, Mm. right? Because they feel like, Hey, the pro feel like the problem is solved. Or they also feel like they they might be getting sold something. You know what I mean? Like it's like you're yeah. to be overly optimistic is also does it? It also doesn't um, give people. Um, it doesn't inspire people to to actually make change or to to advocate for change or anything like that. Um, it, it makes them feel like the problem's in, in good hands, right? Uh, in some ways, uh, but the, yeah. they there is the, so so sort of the middle ground, which is to me like there's a truth here, right? Like there's some degree of truth here. If you put context, put everything in in the right context. And that's that you want to give people, yeah, you want to give them the hard reality as straight as possible, right? But you also, I think it's important to include potential solutions, right? And there is like a whole branch of journalism called solutions journalism that's Hmm. um, been up and down, right? It's it's not, it's, you know, it's, it's not been... I don't think it's taken off in that great of a degree or it's been too focused only on solutions instead of really um, providing that balanced picture of here's the problem and here's what we can do about it. Um, Mm. So, so I think, so I think you do need that balance and, and, and I, and a lot of that does come down to um, the state of journalism in some ways. It's that, you know, the sensational sort of 
story, you know, the old sort of newspaper, if it bleeds, it leads, right? Like the bad news makes the papers. And that's why a lot of people are like, I can't read the news more than like once every week. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but, uh, but, but we need to somehow get out of that paradigm. And I think it's difficult because of how newspapers are funded and um, how they make money. Um, so that's why, again, that's why I think it's really as, as, uh, as, um, as newspapers continue to sort of find their way in this new world where people aren't getting paper subscriptions delivered to their doors. Right. And uh, there's so many, so much of a proliferation of different news outlets, some of them reliable, some of them not, and people don't trust the news. Um, as, as, as journalism finds its way through that, it's really, I think, increasingly up to the institutions that produce the knowledge that would go into those stories to tell their own stories and to do it really well, really legitimately and honestly, and to not sell themselves. No, mm. like, like let, let other people make the judgment. I think we are in an opt in information environment, right? Very much so. Like you don't, who loves advertisements? Everybody raise your hands, right? Like, <laughs> like, I don't think, I don't think for a long time, I mean, maybe some people have like some weird fascination with it, but like, you know, most people don't love <laughs> seeing 10 different, um, you know, commercials during their basketball game for a prescription they'll never need or whatever. Right. And, right. and, and, <laughs> and, uh, or, 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 you know, a ton of, you know, Lexus Christmas commercials, right. Or he's like, okay, yeah, I'm going to afford a Lexus for my significant other. Um, so, so, you know, so, so, so I think, I think, I think we're in a word and this is, there is evidence sort of, again, research to support this, that um, especially among millennials and younger uh, advertising is much less effective, right? We want to know about something, we will look it up, right? So what you want out there, I think, is honest, reliable information and make it easy for people to understand, find, and have it entertain them a little bit too. Like it, it's, it's not, this is a difficult, difficult thing to do. And we, I mean, you know, even like I'm constantly trying to get better at that and, um, but as a, as an entire profession, we really need to get better at that, um, uh, especially from you know, especially on the environment where we are definitely beyond out of time and need to take immediate sort of big action. So right, how when it comes to like the people who are making decisions at the top, like government leaders and um, yeah, those we vote into office do you know like how well versed they are on you know like the reliable information and because i i mean they are the ones who end up make the, making the in i guess more impactful decisions but yeah just uh, wondering if you now we're digging into my politics there. all right i gotta be careful yeah um <laughs> so <laughs> so i i i, I I think I think it really first. I guess the first thing I would say that's kind of maybe a little bit master of the obvious is, you know, it really varies from institution to you know whether it's like, you know, um, city of Fort Bragg versus like you know city of Berkeley, right, or or state yeah. versus federal, like or or which actual what the actual individual elected official is like and what their constituency wants. So I really think that varies a lot. And I think, though, um, I mean, I, I don't th I think our democracy and like we've been saying it's in trouble for a while. Right. And you hear it all the time. 
But it's been like that for a while where private interest, because campaigns um, really depend on money to get people elected, especially in a two-party system where there are sort of limited other options. Um, right. I think, I think uh, elected officials largely serve financial interests that support them um, over the voters. Hmm. And I think that's the case in both parties, both major parties in the United States. Um, I don't, I don't think there's, I, I think that's a problem at, let's say for both parties in the United States um, that are, that are sort of, um, and I, and I'm on a personal note, I'm sort of very much in favor of severely restricting and maybe completely eliminating that, the, that kind of donation, although Citizens United made that near impossible without a massive judicial decision, um, yeah. uh, getting money out of elections and having our public officials represent people and not money. Um, yeah. And also, though, that like we live in a really increasingly we live in a very, very pluralistic society, right? We two parties aren't adequate are, are both a more easy for private interest to capture and B don't adequately re- represent the sort of diversity we have um, both perspective and intellectual wise, right, as well as like background and, you know, like we, they don't they don't two parties can't represent. Um, a country that is as diverse as the United States, right? right. For example, and and you know they're sort of um, one of my favorite political science scholars from back from when I used to study that stuff uh, is this guy named Arend Leipart who works for um, her. Actually, he's now a prof- professor emeritus at um, UC San Diego, and he did like a really statistical analysis of. Uh, of compare a comparative democracy analysis of how multi-party systems like the one they have in New Zealand um, or, you know, Switzerland or Belgium, right. Compared to these sort of majoritarian two-party systems like we have in the UK and the United States. And on like all of the sort of factors that he analyzed them on, they largely perform significantly better statistically speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so I think we need to get away from this. We need things, we need to, uh, you know, to, to, to introduce more change to the system that has been so static, you know, and, and seems to be on a really nasty trajectory. Um, we, we, uh, we need to get away from, we need to get away from that and move to a multi multi-party system. And that's why things that are like you see in Maine with, uh, you know, ranked choice voting, these sort of really geeky wonky, <laughs> things that it's hard to generate public uh, support for like things like multi-member districts and, and ranked choice voting. Um, those are the things that I think have, I think, I think those are, those hold a lot of promise for the future. It's just so unsexy. <laughs> mm. It's so, it's so structural. Um, and, you know, people do the best they can within the system that we have, I think is another thing to emphasize. It's not, it's the structure. That's the problem. And so without right. structural reforms, which are in a lot of cases almost impossible because that's how people got got to, to power, right? Exactly. Uh, but but uh, so, so it's like they'd be changing the system that brought them to power, right? That seems like a tough, tough climb. Um, yeah. And we see that with everything from, you know, we see that in gerrymandering and things like that as well. And redistricting always is a huge, huge battle for politicians. It's probably the, one of the most Ten intense fights that they have uh, when that happens. Um, so, so anyway, there are a lot of structural reforms that are needed to democracy in order for our democracy to ex- 
respond to, you know, what we need to do for the environment, for, for, um, for the people. Right. Is there a way it could just like be broken, you know, just like, <laughs> just really just, yeah. Hit hard and somehow reform will be forced in some way, like a, a new way of designing the system. Um, I, I mean, I don't, I mean, there's a lot of people that, I mean, fairvote.org, uh, does a lot of work towards this. Um, uh, but there, you know, it's not, you know, I, mean, I think there was a, um, McCain, was it, was it McCain Feingold that did like tried the, the campaign finance reform back in the day. And, you know, it's been a, it's the right thing to do. Um, hmm. but it doesn't hold a lot of political reward I see. so and it, it doesn't and again it's not sexy so it's hard to win points with the public um on those issues Got it. so it's it's tough i don't know i don't know how we get past that i mean yeah <laughs> you know it, it, it it's it's difficult to stop the inertia right or, or to stop totally. the momentum of a system that's already in place <laughs> totally i guess it's just like uh do you do you foresee like a way to like map the entire system out? I don't know if someone's done this, but as, at least as someone who like is curious to like visually see what's going on, it's hard to just like read information or even listen yeah. to information about how how it works. But um, yeah. yeah, I'm not really sure how to answer that. I mean, yeah. to me, like the, I mean, one strategy might be and. Um, would love to see something like this and maybe even be a part of it would be, you know, in States like California, where we have, um, you know, the ballot initiatives, right. Where you can get something, you know, you can get, you can get reforms on the ballot um, and have people vote directly on them without having to have it introduced by an, uh, an elected official. Um, that's where, that's why, that's how it's going to happen. Right. If, if, if we have these kind of structural reforms we need, the, I think state by state, jurisdiction by jurisdiction is the way to look at it, right? Um, and 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 then you'll see it, and then then what ends up happening is uh, eventually you reach sort of that critical mass where enough states support it that it becomes an issue of national importance, and the people that are now benefiting from those new systems of government, uh, those new systems of um, you know of, of doing elections and and uh, you know governing. Are they, there's enough of them to sort of take on the existing system. So I think it's got to be, unfortunately, because the problems we have are way more urgent than this. It's the, I think the only way it really practically happens is sort of incrementally on a jurisdictional basis. Huh. Thank you for saying that. I, yeah. Makes this is sense. stuff that I toss around in my mind, but I'm just sort of, you know, meandering and thinking random thoughts this is the stuff that, yeah. that i think that i think about as far as being important and and yeah it's super frustrating to me at times because i'm one of those people that wants things to be fixed all at once like sure <laughs> you know? or even evidence that we're on a continuous right correct path that that's moving at a, at a rapid pace um absolutely but we're way more reactive than that as a as a species it's just that the other reality that I, i'm sort of forced to accept quite often right but this, yeah, it's. I, I really like how you laid it out because, I mean, 
if I ask that to a lot of people, it's just kind of like, ah, don't really know what a map would look like or anything. Or, and that's tough to hear just because, or, or not being able to even see any sort of possible plan. Um, right. So, yeah. Um, okay. Well, how are you feeling? How are you feeling right now? I'm feeling really good. Uh, you know, cool. I'm ex- it's, it's, ex- you know, my, my job is extremely busy. So, um, like the work week is, is, uh, it's a grind, but, uh, you know, it's Friday and I'm looking forward to sounds like, like the first really hot, hot weekend. And I might make it down to the beach this week, you know, weekend and enjoy that. Um, Definitely nice. want to be near some water. I'm looking forward to, I mean, on a personal basis, like I really, you know, California as a state, of course, is sort of quote unquote reopening on the 15th and my local swimming pool, which is what I like. That's, that's my lunch break normally and has been gone for a whole year uh, is coming back on the 14th. And I'm really looking forward wow. to like getting into water <laughs> and just swimming. It's like, it's like a mid it's, you know, it's sort of part of the routine that's been missing and I'm looking forward to bringing that part back, you know, that healthy part of some of the healthier parts of, of, of life back and, uh, and to seeing people and just sort of being more social again. Um, you know, I think the importance of, of that sort of social interaction for a lot of people is so understated. Yeah. hundred percent, hundred percent. Well, I don't you? know how much <laughs> I, I feel. I feel awesome. Yeah. This is good. Yeah, I really cherish this conversation. It's uh, been really eye-opening for me and just great to hear. So thank yeah. you. Uh, I mean, I'm shooting from the hip. You know, this is like the stuff I believe. Um, it definitely doesn't yeah. represent the, necessarily like anybody from the institute I work for, but the institute itself, like where we're a pretty dispassionate right. institute to, like in, that it's devoted in a lot, or passionate institute, but it, that is devoted to doing science. And that's, I think another challenge, right, is you've got scientists who can't, really take a strong political position because it compromises, it compromises the, you know, the, the, um, you know, it, it, sh- it makes their science look biased, I suppose. Mm. And, you know, it compromises the quality of, of their research project. If they are too much of an advocate of, of different issues, like they're the fact finders, right? It's up to other people to be right. the advocates. So, um, there are certain times where it's like the science is so undeniable that they can take positions. And I'm sure they have a lot of, a lot of folks have like their own positions that they kind of, they don't put it out there in the general public and blast it out there. But every, it's not like, it's not like, you know, even journalists, right? Like you were trying to be like these absolute objective, right? Journalists. And and this is something that's been pointed out by a lot of people within that profession um, are, you know, they, they all have opinions and beliefs and it definitely affects the way they write. It's almost silly to pretend that it doesn't. Um, you know, but, but I think, I think the desire to try to be, um, objective and try to really draw from the facts and, and be honest about those facts, uh, is an important thing to do. Um, and that's sort of, that's, 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 that's where, that's, that's where my, most, all my opinions come from. I'm I'm super, super skeptical, probably to a fault. Um, (laughs) yeah, this just uh, feels real. This is good. Yeah. yeah, it's it's interesting, like how how much just money talks in the science world. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not so sure. I mean, I don't, I don't know how that 
that's not really my area of expertise as far as health. I mean, I do think it's like a lot of, um, a lot of really fantastic science does get done, but there, I think there are certain things that, you know, and then this isn't limited to the sciences that get underemphasized because, um, you know, there's a lack of support, financial support, both public and private for them. You know, I think that's a problem at every university and like you've had, you know, the, the sort of, it, it definitely flies in the face of this, um, uh, you know, this sort of, this old, uh, this old thought that, you know, that, um, universities are sort of these distorted, like hyper, hyper leftist, right. <laughs> Institutions. It's just really sure. not the case. It's, uh, it's, I mean, I think, I think if anything, it's, 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 it's a little bit the opposite. Um, and, uh, and I, th- and I don't, I don't think people, I don't think people really see that, um, uh, money does talk, right. It talks in public opinion too. Right. And, uh, that's how, that's how the, the stories are told on a, in a political sense. That's how support is galvanized in that sense. Um, and, uh, yeah, when the facts fly in, in the face of, uh, an interest, uh, right. Like a private interest, it's just like, you know, how, how we are with, with our personal decisions, right. We're a little bit selfish, right. Like when facts fly in the face of that, it's, um, I think it's, it can, it can become easy for people to either try to minimize or disregard those facts. Right. Absolutely. Well, how does it sound right now to dive in? I've got these, I don't know how much time you have. Um, I've probably got to bounce pretty soon. Uh, I'm actually, yeah, I had, I have to pick up a call soon. Um, or or re-respond to a call soon. Of course. Um, the life of, of uh, of communications professional means like kind of hopping to, if it's a weekend or middle of the night when you get calls from reporters or anything like that, right? Like you definitely, their job's hard enough, right? (laughs) Roll out the welcome mat and make their lives easier. Got it. Well, maybe, um, we'll do one of these two options. There's one thing I like to do on the podcast where um, I ask the guests what their favorite song is or a song they like have been listening to recently and mm. play the song and then um, listen to it and either can like use a pen and paper and write down thoughts that you have while the song's going, um, like a poem or whatever it may be. Or another fun one is to just listen to the song and then in your head, visualize your own music video to it and then kind of come back and share what that looked like. Well, I mean, I don't know what my favorite song is right now um, or if it would be like appealing to a large number of people. I don't know if it's like I have a favorite song. It's like, do I have a favorite color? I'm probably not. I probably like a lot (laughs) of stuff. Or just a song, Um, yeah. A song that I like. Yeah, okay, that's exactly. way, that's totally fair. Um, let's see. Hold on a moment. Let me find one for you. I mean, I don't know if I can play it over my microphone, actually, though. So I don't know how. Yeah, I can work. play it. Uh, okay. Yeah. I mean, so I've been really digging. Like, I mean, I grew up in the '90s. Like, I came to age of the '90s, right? Like, that's, that was my teen years, and and. Um, and, uh, and so, 
you know, I was really, there was, there was a lot of very interesting stuff going on with electronic music at the time, of course. Um, you know, and, uh, I was super interested in like dance music, particularly break beats. Right. And like, you know, really heavily stuff that relies on a lot of samples and whatnot. So, you know, I know I'll pick something even, you know what, let me think here. Uh, let me try to pick something a little more accessible because I've come up with a whole bunch of London breakbeat DJs that like nobody knows. Although like I really do love that music. That's um, awesome. Yeah, we could. Yeah. <laughs> but let's go with something a little bit more accessible. Um, sure. Uh, and, uh, and uh, I think let's, let's, let's talk about like the avalanches, right? Or let's, let's think of the avalanches. Um, they put out an album last year called we, we will always love you. Um, and let me see. Maybe the maybe the the title track is the best one to go with. Awesome. Let me look. Um, they, they got a lot of collaborations on this. They're super um, creative in what they do, and I think just poppy enough to be appealed to a, a relatively large group. Um, awesome. There's a song called Yeah. I think that I think. Um, let me see this. I want to see this one real quick. No, maybe not. Um, how about oh geez. You have to edit this. It's it's all good, yeah, no worries. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just listening to tracks, so I'm make sure I get the right track. Sure. Yeah, let's just go with the title. Let's go with the title track. We will always love you. I guess. I think that's cool. probably the most. That's their mo- the most popular one. Although Interstellar Love's really great off that album. They also have some fantastic collaborations with sort of rappers and hip hop artists, and you know other artists, even like like Johnny Marr and Tricky, and uh, you know Perry Farrell of um, Jane's Addiction, and like they've just got a lot of interesting collaborations. Sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Alrighty, I will. Got it queued up. I'm here. probably not going to draw anything or write any poetry at the moment. I just don't. It's Friday. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> just enjoy. Yeah. Here we go.
about leaving the house, but my fears aren't letting up. So that's going to be the vibe this summer for sure for me. I'm really looking forward to throwing that on uh, and sitting on the beach and just like flopping there. Wow, I love that. <laughs> or driving, right? Like it's a good road. It's a good road trip album. If you want to get into like the uh, the sort of emerging young like new break beats that are coming out have been coming out in like 2021 and 20 last year, I think a really good there's some good acts to start with. You can start with Prospa. P-R-O-S-P-A, uh, Bicep, um, and you know what? There's got to be another one. There's another one that I'd like was probably my favorite. Um, the stuff uh, Burial has been doing lately, um, the London-based, another London-based artist, uh, I know, particularly the track called Chems, C-H-E-M-Z, um, some just some real cool stuff, like some really Sweet. creative, but also... For me, very sort of halcyonic like sounds and um, Kelly Lee Owens, another really great one. There's just there's so much good music coming out right now. Um, and I've been I have fortunate to have some like for, like a tight knit group of friends that are really like tuned into music. So we're always listening to new stuff. And over the past year, that's been like a big way to sort of come together while everybody's kind of isolated. Absolutely. That's awesome. That's well, thank, not, I, yeah, I, I, and thank you so I, much for your time today, Grant. I really appreciate chatting with you and have the chance to like spout off my random ideas. Um, of course, <laughs> of know, course, uh, it's, it's fun. It's 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 fun to um, to do this stuff, uh, and I think more more people should. So, yeah, I, yeah. I really appreciate. Yeah, just any time um, to talk about things like this, and just being able to just go off the cuff and share how you know authentically you're feeling you know about the way things are and uh i think it's i think it's awesome so yeah i can't thank you enough i think listening to that song i after you said line on the beach just listen to that i 
I imagine you just like floating like on your towel, like, just, like <laughs> yeah, right. You know, it's so good. I would be yeah. for sure. It's uh, awesome. <laughs> yeah, just imagine the visual of my pandemic bod laying out there on the beach right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but the rest of it sounds great. Um, yeah, thanks again for your time. It was really cool. Of course. Yeah. Any uh, any last things you like to share with the world or anything like that? Get out of your houses when you can. Just get out. <laughs> it's summertime. We've been stuck inside. I think this is like a, a good summer for just shedding some of that skin, that dead skin from the past year, for getting some catharsis, getting together with people, even if it doesn't feel comfortable at first. Um, you know, don't don't shy from it. I mean, obviously be safe, but don't shy from, from that. Um, that. People need each other and uh, we got to get out there and spend time with each other again love it love that well thank you so much david uh, thanks we'll, grant yeah i'll keep you posted on when this gets out and everything and uh yeah i'm excited to put it up and share it sounds great man all right beautiful i'll talk to you later all right sounds great take care take care